And Avalard said, this Christ is victim stuff that Anselm is talking about, I find repugnant. The idea that you've got to somehow pay off God or, or you know, pay a price. And I don't like that very much. And I don't like that picture of Jesus. What he liked a lot better was what he called the moral theory of the atonement. And it's a guy named Peter Abelard. I think I've got it spelled right. Somehow I get the idea there's two A's here, but I could be wrong with that. This one? Okay. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes he's words get spelled differently by different people. But Peter of Abelard. Abelard came up with this kind of moral atonement theory. And what Abelard was saying is the best way to think about what Jesus is doing is he's showing us how we're supposed to live, setting us an example. And so the moral theory is the kind of example theory. So what Jesus is doing on the cross is he's showing the idea of giving up yourself, humility, being humble, trusting God, the absolute faith, that's what it's about. And so the way of salvation is when we do those sorts of things in our life. And so when we learn to be humble, when we learn to give of ourselves, when we learn to trust God perfectly, that's when salvation happens for us. Now, does that sound pretty attractive? It shouldn't. <laughs> this theory, in fact, we would reject. We would say, Christus victor, Christus victim, both work, both scriptural. But we would argue that the moral theory while it has some elements of truth to it, at heart is dead wrong. Now, the element of truth is the fact that Jesus does say, follow me and be like me. So is Jesus our example? Sure he is. Jesus as example. There's no problem with that. He is example for us. But that does not equal salvation. See, the big problem for Abelard is he made the mistake that gets made again and again and again by people. He does not distinguish between the vertical and the horizontal. Jesus gives us an example to follow in the horizontal realm of how to live faithfully and humbly. But our living here does not mean I have salvation here. Abelard saw it as all one piece. That's the mistake he makes. Now, the mistake that we tend to make as Lutherans is we say, no, Jesus is the victor. Jesus is the victim who gives us everything. Moral, absolutely not. That's ruled out. No way for that. Is Jesus my example? No. Quit talking that way. He's, the, he's your savior, not your example. And we get that kind of overemphasis, and we end up missing the fact that he does give us an example of how to live, and he does teach us how we're supposed to live. In fact, in the Middle Ages, there's another guy named Thomas Akempis who wrote a book called The Imitatio Christi, which is just what it looks like, the imitation of Christ. And Akempa said the life of a Christian should be imitating Jesus, following him. And Lutherans often in our history have resisted this and said, that's not right. We don't imitate Christ. We should just do um, faith, just believe in him. That's all we're supposed to do. Quite honestly, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, in your life, you should be emulating what Christ has done. The imitatio Christi is a good thing. It has a place in the Lutheran church. It does not bring you salvation. It does not earn God's favor or blessings. But it is exactly the description of how the Christian life should look. Christ, he can't be in the flesh. Yeah, I mean, when you're doing things God's way, 
They're going to look like gods. And, and it's kind of really very simple. And you're not going to do it in the flesh. I, I, I think of it this way. If I'm doing things the way God wants me to do and accomplishing his will, that means I'm doing basically conformity to the law. Well, who did that the best? Yeah, Jesus did. Jesus lived his life in full conformity with the Father's will. He kept the law. He lived it completely. That's just what he did. And so if I, I'm looking for an example of how I'm supposed to live and finding encouragement or direction or, you know, giving me, leading me along, well, where better to look than at Christ? But incidentally, when I look at Christ for my example, am I zeroing in on the divinity of Jesus or the humanity of Jesus? Exactly. I'm paying attention to Christ and his humanity. The divinity is of no interest to me, to be honest. I can't touch that. I'm not God. I'm not called to be God. I'm called to be fully human, complete in my humanity. And who's the best example of full humanity? Jesus, the full human who lived the perfect human life who did things God's way. So if I want to see what a real, complete human life looks like, I consider Jesus. And he does become my example. And I do emulate what he's done. And I follow him. So it turns out that the WWJD people aren't so kooky as we thought. And I know it's popular in some of our circles to kind of make fun of WWJD and kind of run it down. But there's a place for this. There's a place for asking the question, what does Jesus, as the perfect human following the Father, do? And what should I do as the one who tries to follow Christ? Now, WWJD also has its limits because just because Jesus did something doesn't mean you should do it. Because his calling or his vocation is different than yours. Jesus was called to be Messiah. None of you have that call. I'm quite confident of that. You have other callings. And so you need to say, within my calling, within my vocation, how do I follow Christ? How do I emulate him? How do I do things the way he would do them? But it's a fair question to ask. How would Jesus approach the situation? It's, you know, a classic example is Jesus hung out with prostitutes. And my experience is most of us probably don't have much business hanging out with prostitutes. Okay? Do we need to bring God's gospel to people who are downtrodden? Sure. But do we make a habit of doing everything the way Jesus did it? Not necessarily. Okay? All right. So, Christ as example, not the way Abelard talks about it. And Abelard, by and large, should be kind of looked at as bad guy. Not, not one of the good guys. Okay? Abelard had his other problems anyway. Go ahead. <coughs> the, um, I don't know how Christi. Christi. That came out of Abelard's. No, this is Lawrence of Kansas. Did, did he influence, like, did that, did the moral theory influence that? No, that's or was that way before? That's always been around. That's kind of a separate thing going on. I'm just pointing out the fact that Christ's example is not a problem. But it is a problem if you try to make it self-ethic. That's, that's the concern here. All right. Now, of these, one we're probably the most comfortable with, most familiar with, is Christ's victim. We we tend to think about that quite a bit. Pretty comfortable with that. But Christ's victor certainly also has its place. All right. Good. Other questions? All right. Good. Now, while we've got a minute here, Let's talk just a little bit more about Abelard and about this whole problem of confusing the two ways, the two kinds of righteousness or the two realms, the vertical and the horizontal. 
let's think about this a little more. One of the problems that was going on, and Abelard represents this, and it helps to kind of just think about classic Roman Catholic theology, how things function, and sort of what was going on in the Reformation. And I've got just enough time here, I think, to lay this thing up. Classic Roman Catholic theology was the kind that was being taught in Luther's day, and the kind that, quite honestly, still exists and thrives all over the world, even in America, works something like this. The concept is that salvation is all about my climbing to God, what I accomplish. And so in classic Catholic theology, I am put on the staircase of salvation and of justification by the grace of God. And my task then is to climb and work my way to God. And do Catholics, we talked about this yesterday, do they depend on grace? Absolutely. Because I cannot even make a step, I can't climb without the grace of God to enable me to climb. And they worked out all kinds of things within this system. So, for example, when I am born, I am an enemy of God. By grace, baptism comes, and baptism basically puts me on the staircase, which is the life within the church. Because salvation doesn't happen apart from the church. All tied in together. So now I'm part of the church, and now I get to start making my way to God. Climbing my way up. How do I do that? Yeah, good works. I go to Mass. I go to confession. And I do the things that I'm told to do. I give my tithes, my offerings. I do whatever I'm supposed to do. And I keep on working my way. And I get better and better. And it works out quite nicely. I'm climbing my way. And if I make a mistake and I really blow it and I fall into some horrendous sin, no problem. We've got, a, we've got an answer for that too. You just go to confession and you do your penance and you take care of it. Everything's okay. You're back on track. You keep working at it. Everything's fine. And so that was the system that was essentially operating. So my performance would eventually earn me God's favor. Now, problems come, though. What happens if I'm working my way into God's favor, and I'm really climbing very well, but I'm not quite done, but I die? Well, that's what we talked about that as well. That's where you have purgatory fits in. Okay? Purgatory is not the same as limbo. And people get this mixed up all the time. Purgatory is a place where I go and I am purged of my sin, cleaned up. And purgatory is not a fun place. Purgatory is essentially hell with a time limit. So when the souls go to purgatory, they endure suffering because you've got to pay for your sins. And the way you pay for your sins is by suffering. So purgatory is a little hell and a little fires and pain and suffering, but it has a time limit, mercifully, so that when I'm done with my time in purgatory, then I can get into God's presence. Now, the system is not done yet. It gets even better because... There are some people who make the climb, and they get there. They don't have to go to purgatory. There's no time spent. They, they have arrived at the level of perfection they need, and they get to dodge purgatory entirely and just go right out into God's presence. Cool for them. In fact, there are a few saints, a handful, who are so perfect and so good in their climb that when they get to heaven, they actually have more merit than they need. They've got a surplus. They don't, they're not even in a deficit situation. They've got more merit than they need. So what happens then is 
Over here somewhere, you have this treasury of merits or a merit bank. And if I get to, the, I arrive at the gates of heaven and I've got more than I need, well, I just make a nice deposit into the merit bank. Ching, it works out really nicely. If I'm still in this life climbing, what do I need to get me on along the way? Well, I need grace. I need to delve into this merit bank. And in fact, I can try to make withdrawals from this merit bank to enable me to get along the way. Now you see where the doctrine of the saints fits in. I pray to the saints because those saints are the very ones who had achieved more merit than they need. And if I ask them right and nicely, I can maybe shake loose some of the merit they earn and it'll get credited to my account. So it's like this huge, beautiful bank ledger. And so Peter over here has got more merit than he needs. This saint prayed really well. He climbed the stairs the way he was supposed to. He went to the shrine and he prayed in front of the relic. Bingo. We'll give him some merit. And so he gets merit credited to him. But he's also earned it because of his good actions. He deserves it. He's got it coming to him. And he makes his way. And this also explains why you have the prayers for the dead. They're up there in purgatory. Oh, man. Is that a nasty place? And they're experiencing really terrible situations and a lot of suffering. So what do we do here? Well, I can pray for those souls. And by praying for those souls, I can shake some merit loose on their behalf. And besides, I get some merit too because I prayed. So everybody wins. It's kind of a nice deal. But they get their time cut short in purgatory, and they get quicker to God's presence, and their suffering ends. This was the beautiful, elaborate system worked out in Luther's day. It works great. And limbo, like I mentioned that, they also have this teaching of limbo. Limbo is not purgatory. Limbo is the place where you send people who are really good, but they're not Christian. What are you going to do with them? Like Aristotle or Plato, okay? Don't want to send them to hell, because they're actually they're very helpful. They wrote most of our theology for us. So we can't send them to hell, but well, you can't let them go to heaven either, because they're not Christian. And what about babies who died before baptism? We don't know what happened to them either. We'll put them in limbo too. And so limbo is forever a place somewhere between heaven and somewhere between hell. It's not suffering. Purgatory, this is bad. You suffer in purgatory. And, but limbo is just kind of neutral. Not great, not bad, just kind of in between. And you put there people there who you don't know what else to do with. Christian, then you better be in limbo than be in purgatory. No, 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 because purgatory is short. You just do your time. Yeah, you're right. You got, the ultimate thing is going to be okay. You'll get there. It's just how long do you need to spend in purgatory. And the, the times of purgatory is racked right up. I mean, we're not talking years or tens of years. We're talking thousands of years. It, it, it got pretty intense. And so this was the system. And in Luther's day, it was just a really nice system worked out in the Middle Ages. It had developed pretty thoroughly. And if you really want to make sure you're getting progress, well, you got to do the right thing. And one of the best things you can do is quit your life and go be a monk because now you're really on the fast track, right? And so if you're going to take seriously spiritual stuff, you go join a monastery or join a convent, which is why the convents and the monasteries were just doing a booming business in the Middle Ages. Why not? Life at home is pretty lousy anyway. Life is hard in the Middle Ages. Go join a monastery, get on the fast track to heaven, earn my way, get my way up there closer and quicker. It's great. Wonderful system. And then someone came up with an even better idea. How about instead of these guys having to just work their way, pray their way into this merit, and try to earn their way into this merit, why don't we just let them buy it? And so they came up with the teaching of indulgences. 
And so what indulgences were, were was a brilliant idea. Because now, <clears throat> when I really blow it, and I fall back a few stairs, instead of having to go through this horrendous time of penance, which could get pretty hairy, all the canon law would lay it out, you got to do this and this and this, oh man. Or you can simply buy an indulgence. <clears throat> and that worked out a lot better. Now, originally, indulgences were aimed at the souls in purgatory. And it would work like this. Grandma Kleinschmidt, dear old lady, you loved her, but she was a real wench. You know, you all know it. And you can imagine, Grandma Kleinschmidt now, she's up there in purgatory. She's doing some hard time. You know what? In your life, you weren't very good to Grandma Kleinschmidt. In fact, at her funeral, you skipped. You put her in that leafy pine box. You didn't show her the kind of action you should have showed her. You didn't do it right by Grandma Kleinschmidt. But now you can. If you give us a nice contribution, a few thousand golden, we will give you this document which will shorten Grandma Kleinschmidt's time in purgatory by 2,000 years. People are saying, wow, that's great. I feel really bad about Grandma Kleinschmidt. You know, she's dead. If I can help her out now, I'll do it. So indulgences were being sold hand over fist, buying people out of purgatory and shortening their time. And all the cash that was being earned was going straight back to Rome and was being used to build St. Peter's Basilica. So St. Peter's Basilica was built probably by your forebears, if you are of Germanic or Eastern or Western European descent, because the Germans and the French paid for St. Peter's in their sale of indulgences, and the Germans were especially eager to buy indulgences. They just part of that guilty nature they have. And so indulgences would be sold hand over fist, shorting the time of purgatory, and the people would go flying off. This is Tesla's little thing. The moment the coin in the coffer springs, the soul from purgatory springs. You know, and it's just how they believed it. Problem came when somebody said, we're making some great money selling these indulgences, but how about if we let, we let people start buying them for their own sins? We can make some really serious money. So now, if I get involved in some kind of sin spree, instead of having to do penance and actually have a heartfelt repentance, I can just go buy an indulgence, whack off a few thousand years of my purgatory time, and I'm all set. And so you're actually buying salvation. And it was about that point when Luther finally came unglued. Because what was really bothering Luther in the 15-teens, the start of the Reformation, was not that the gospel was being muddled. He didn't know what the gospel was, clearly, yet. What was bothering Luther was that people were getting to shortcut having to earn their salvation. He didn't like the idea of people being able to buy their way out of the ladder. He wanted people to have to do the work. That's what he was interested in. And if you read the <clears throat> 95 Theses, that's the general tenor of the 95 Theses. The Pope doesn't have the authority to shorten the time. The Pope can't sell indulgences. He's out of line because you've got to do it yourself. So he doesn't have the gospel clear yet in 1517, not all the way. He's starting to get little hints of it, but it's not coming clean just yet. It takes a little while, somewhere along the way. So this was the beautiful grand system, and the bottom line heart of the problem is that horizontal righteousness, what I do, was earning me vertical salvation. That's the problem. And this system should look pretty familiar, because Catholics developed it, they still teach this sort of thing, and a lot of evangelicals teach this sort of thing. Go to church, give my tithe, go to promise keepers, love my wife, I do enough of the right things, and God's going to bless me, and I'm in. And if I don't do those things, man, I'm not sure where I stand. See, it all gets muddled. 
This is such a temptation for us. We operate really well with this. We like this. Give me something to do. But God says, no stairs, no ladders. I simply come to you in Christ, and it's all about grace, which is an affront to our human ability. I'd rather do it myself. Thank you. Okay, questions? Explain um, why the Catholic Church has, what, six or seven means of grace? <laughs> the sacraments, we'll get to that later. That really doesn't explain it. That's a different issue. That has something to do with the definition of sacrament. We'll get to that maybe this afternoon. They just made this up without basing it on Scripture? No! There's all kinds of Scripture that talks about working out your salvation with fear and trembling, right? Purgatory and all Well, that. yeah, okay. Well, you got these kind of obscure things in the Apocrypha, which they claim for it. But, yeah, the other thing you see here is when somebody asks the question, what about unbaptized babies? Well, you don't want to stand in front of the group and say, I don't know. So you say, limbo. And everything's answered. And so the beauty of the system is there's an answer for everything. Everything. Everything's got an answer. There's no, there's nothing where you stand in front of the group and say, don't know about that. You've got an answer for it all. And so the, it's just also, it's very tempting, very attractive. Nice to have an answer for everything. It, it looks like... If you were rich, this would really be great. Oh, yeah. Um, it was really especially great. Especially if you got rich by committing a bunch of sins. Yeah. You could just give some of it That's back right. to the church and buy your way into heaven. Exactly. Uh, but it, and it seems like you could also argue that, like like that divine right of the king, mm-hmm. you get the divine right of the rich. Well, sure. You know, God well, wants to be rich, so I can buy indulgences. Sure. It all got explained that way. And you see this, you can also see now why... Um, when Luther came along and started asking some questions about indulgences, he was met with less than an enthusiastic response. Because the whole entire medieval system was built on this. You had the Pope selling the right to sell indulgences to bishops and, and princes. You know, I think well, I want to sell an indulgence. Well, we can work that out. You give me 50%, you get to keep 40 whatever. You know, they had it all worked out. But the Pope held the right on who gets to sell indulgences. It was a wonderful system. So when Luther started challenging indulgences. What the Pope saw was, there goes my cash cow. And what the princess saw was, there goes my ability to raise money. And everything just was hinging on this. So nobody wanted this to change. Except for Luther and the people at the bottom of the pile who were being, you know, made to feel like they needed to buy these indulgences and were selling all their money. So Luther rather naively thought, hey, i got to let the Pope know what's going on here. There's a lot of abuse happening not realizing that the abuse went clear to the top and the Pope was the very one who was delighting in it because he was getting his basilica built and everything else done that he wanted.